You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. In June of 1903, Ernest Shackleton came home to England after spending two years in the Antarctic. He had participated in the farthest south journey and had learned a tremendous amount about not just the frigid polar region, but about being a leader. But Shackleton could not help but feel disappointed and even a little shamed, and that's because Discovery's commander, Robert Falcon Scott, had sent Shackleton home due to lingering effects of scurvy and the fact that he didn't like or trust his junior officer. So when Shackleton returned to his family, and now fiancé, Emily Dorman, he wasn't necessarily thinking great things were awaiting him. But little did he know that he would soon ascend to the national stage in England, and by 1907, Antarctica would come calling again, but this time with him in command. So today on the Explorers podcast, we are going to cover the years of Shackleton's life between the Discovery Expedition and his next polar venture, roughly 1903 to 1907. Let's get started. It was the summer of 1903, and Shackleton returned home to find his life evolving. His fiancée, Emily Dorman, had lost her father two years earlier. A trust had been established for Emily, which paid her 700 pounds a year, quite a considerable amount. As a contrast, Shackleton only got 250 pounds a year for his work with the Discovery Expedition. The trust money would give the family a comfortable lifestyle, but it did not make them rich. The two were planning a spring wedding for 1904, and Shackleton told Emily that he was done with the Antarctic, which he may very well have thought was true at the time. Instead, he envisioned finding a good job and enjoying life amongst the upper crust of London society, which Emily's family was well ensconced. Now, as part of the Discovery Expedition, Shackleton had been given a commission in the Royal Navy Reserves, and thus he tried to use his new connections to get the commission transferred over to active service. The Royal Navy offered better pay and opportunities than the Merchant Navy, and it was far more prestigious, not to mention more exciting. In typical Shackleton fashion, he saw it as a springboard to better things. Shackleton talked with Sir Clements Markham, the organizer of the Discovery Expedition, and a Shackleton supporter, as well as other well-placed connections, to try and swing the appointment. But the British Admiralty wasn't biting, and they turned down the request. Now, speaking of the Discovery Expedition, the whole enterprise was still going on, and much to the embarrassment of Clements Markham and the Expedition's committee, Discovery had never been freed from the ice that year. The committee needed to send a relief expedition to Discovery to bring supplies and men, but to also try to free the ship from the ice pack. The problem was that the committee had no money. Shackleton would do his part to raise awareness and funds with the public, but that was peanuts compared to what was needed. Thus, the Discovery Committee appealed to the government for assistance. 
However, as the cost and scope of the relief expedition ballooned, the government grew exasperated by what they perceived as the committee's ineptitude. They didn't want to cut a big check to a bunch of people that they did not trust. And thus control of the affair was taken from the Discovery Expedition Committee and moved to the British Admiralty. They would do the job themselves. The cost would ultimately be £45,000, and many howled at the price. But the other option was to do nothing and let Scott and his men fend for themselves and perhaps perish. That was simply not an option. A relief ship was purchased and outfitted in Dundee, Scotland, to go with a vessel already in New Zealand. And for this, the Admiralty would turn to Shackleton for assistance. Due to Shackleton's intimate knowledge of the situation, he was asked to serve as the first officer of one of the relief vessels. Now, this must have been tempting to Shackleton, to sail back to Antarctica, rescuing Scott from the stink the man had found himself in. Well, that would have been some pretty sweet revenge. However, Shackleton would turn down the opportunity, even when Admiral William Wharton personally appealed to him. Shackleton had several reasons for this. First, it would have meant putting off his wedding. Second, he may very well have been done with the Antarctic and just wanted nothing to do with going back. He had, after all, just spent two years there. And third, there was his personal loyalty to Sir Clements Markham. Markham had remained a supporter of Shackleton even after his unceremonious return. And Shackleton liked the man, and thus he felt that he would be betraying Markham by accepting such a position. In the end, Shackleton stuck to his guns and said no. Now, Shackleton did travel to Dundee and assist with the outfitting of the ship and spoke with key people about what they would face in Antarctica. His experience gave him an expertise few could match. In the same vein, the Argentinian government reached out to Shackleton for his advice regarding the rescue of a Norwegian expedition that was stranded on the Antarctic ice. It demonstrated the expertise Shackleton now possessed in the field of polar exploration. And that brings us to Shackleton's rise as a public figure. I mentioned this last time, but when Scott banished Shackleton from the Discovery Expedition, he probably thought that it was the last he would ever hear of the man. I mean, Shackleton was just a junior officer who had been sent home for medical reasons. Why would he matter to anyone? Ah, silly Robert Falcon Scott. Little did he understand. By sending Shackleton home early, it gave the man a public stage, alone, for a full year. Newspapers wanted to hear about the farthest south journey. Magazines wrote articles about it. It was exciting news to the public and the one person who could provide first-hand information about it all was none other than Ernest Shackleton. And thus, without asking for it, Shackleton became the semi-official voice and face of the Discovery Expedition. Soon his name was peppered throughout publications in Great Britain. Yes, he had come home early, but without Scott there to poo-poo Shackleton, it was portrayed as an unfortunate medical issue. Shackleton was still this brave and resolute explorer with a great story to tell. And as we have noted, Shackleton could spin a story. He soon found himself telling tales from the expedition to groups of two and three and four, and then eight and ten. Eventually, he would be invited to lecture on the subject, and Shackleton found that he had a real talent for engaging an audience, even a large one. He was handsome, funny, and articulate. People loved his Irish brogue, and he was not afraid of the spotlight. He had the rare ability to connect and relate with people of all classes. Wherever he went, people showered him with praise and applause. Now, all of this was great for Shackleton's ego. He fed off the adulation. However, none of this would get him a job, and before long, that was his primary concern. The prospect of returning to the Merchant Navy was dismissed. Gone from home too often, not enough pay, low prestige, you get the idea. In the back of Shackleton's mind, he considered organizing his own Antarctic expedition, and he played coy when people asked about it. But for now, he professed his desire to be with his family. This would lead to Shackleton taking several different jobs over the next few years, none of which would really work out. 
The first job was as a sub-editor at a magazine. Not a bad concept, as Shackleton had shown interest and talent at putting together the monthly newspaper on Discovery. However, this job meant doing things like copy editing, proofing and writing headlines, and the content was light entertainment aimed at middle-class readers. It was not exactly the challenge Shackleton wanted or needed, considering only a year earlier he had been trying to reach the South Pole. The magazine's editor, a man named Percy Everett, loved Shackleton, but admitted that he had no talent for the job. But Everett said that, in person, Shackleton had a rare confidence and ability to hold an audience. He said that, when Shackleton started talking, people would stop and listen, saying, quote, No man told a better story, and he made us see the things he spoke of and held us all spellbound, end quote. Unfortunately, the job would last only three months. Running an amateur newspaper was one thing, but the day-to-day grind of a literary journal was another. Shackleton didn't have the patience or experience for it. Shackleton would take another stab at the literary world when he would, after wooing the audience at the Royal Scottish Geographical Society in November of 1903, be offered a position as a secretary with the venerable organization, which he would accept. He and Emily would have to move from London to Edinburgh, but the Royal Scottish Geographical Society, or RSGS, was more prestigious than his previous job and focused on things that Shackleton actually had knowledge of, such as science, geography, and exploration. Plus, the position would put Shackleton in contact with important people who might be able to help him if he elected to make his own run at the South Pole. Shackleton's stint at the RSGS wasn't exactly a rousing success. He had been brought on to try and shake up the stay at institution and increase membership and revenues. The results were mixed. As with his previous job, he struggled with the details and was bored quickly by things he didn't understand. However, he did well at PR-related things, such as organizing lectures and engaging members. He got to mix with the elites of Scottish society and traveled frequently for society business, often to London. Now, all that said, I want to mention something interesting about Shackleton's stay with the RSGS. While at the society, he would meet Scottish naturalist William Bruce. Several years earlier, Bruce had offered his services to the Discovery Expedition, but had been rejected. And thus, he had organized his own scientific venture, the Scottish National Antarctic Expedition. Bruce had raised £36,000 for the venture, all from private donations, including one mega-donor, who had given £30,000. And thus the man had gone on his expedition, which was strictly about science, not exploration or adventure, for about one-third of what the Discovery Expedition had cost. It had been successful, and Shackleton was fascinated by this idea, and he saw it as a potential model for an expedition of his own. Now, we have talked about Shackleton's insistence that he was done with the Antarctic, He told this to Emily, and he had rejected a job on the Discovery Relief Expedition. So what was the truth? Well, the likely answer is that Shackleton wanted to be done with Antarctica, but he was struggling to find his place in the world back in England. He had a bit of fame, but money wasn't exactly flowing in, and the jobs that he had were not fulfilling. What he knew and had expertise in was polar exploration. Those were job skills that didn't exactly translate well into the real world. It was odd, as Shackleton, while in Antarctica, was confident and assertive, but now that he was home, he was on the struggle bus. I mean, he knew how to engage and entertain others, but the modern world simply constrained him. Shackleton's wife, Emily, they would marry in April of 1904, said this of her husband, quote, one must not chain down an eagle in a barnyard, end quote. And thus Shackleton began to consider his options, and that, perhaps, meant a return to the polar regions. He briefly considered a scheme to make a run at the North Pole with a Canadian mariner named Joseph Elziar Bernier, but that would never amount to anything more than talk. 
But quietly, Shackleton began to put together ideas for his own expedition to the south. So while all of this was happening, it is time for us to bring home our friend, Robert Falcon Scott. In September of 1904, the Discovery would return to England. As I mentioned last time, the ship had almost been lost, but in February it had suddenly been freed from the ice pack and made its way to the open sea. This had saved a lot of reputations, including Scott's. If Discovery had been lost, well, that was just about the worst thing for a naval officer. As for Scott, he and his team came home to the cheers of a nation. Now, I want to be clear. These were not ticker tape parade cheers and celebrations. It was more of a well-done pat-on-the-back kind of thing. The Discovery Expedition had done a lot of good things, but there was nothing epic that really grabbed the attention of the public. Still, the scientific community and the government embraced Scott and his work. The man was promoted to the rank of captain, and the Royal Geographical Society gave him their gold medal. Shackleton, by the way, was awarded a silver medal by the Society for his part in the expedition. Scott, meanwhile, was already thinking about a return expedition. He desperately wanted to get to the South Pole and make his mark on the world. As for Scott and Shackleton, well, the year apart had mellowed a lot of their problems. Shackleton had even visited Scott's mother after his return to England. And while Shackleton had certainly taken the spotlight over the last year, he had not disparaged Scott and had generally represented the expedition quite well. Thus, the two men were cordial with each other, and when Scott asked about his future plans, Shackleton told him that he had no ambitions to return to Antarctica, adding, quote, I am married and settled down, end quote. Ah, but that was a lie. We all know he was toying with the idea. He had even written up a four-page prospectus, showing it to a few major investors. But when no one bid on the idea, he put it on the back burner. So 1905 would bring some new opportunities for Shackleton, both personally and professionally. The first item was family. He and Emily would welcome their first child, a boy named Raymond, in February 1905. Shackleton said that the boy had, quote, great fists for fighting, end quote. The second item was politics. Remember, Shackleton was living in Scotland now, and his popularity was duly noted by the Liberal Unionist Party. They would approach him about running for Parliament for the city of Dundee. The Liberal Unionist Party was a breakaway organization from the traditional Liberal Party. Their main policy platform was opposition to home rule in Ireland. It was an interesting stance, since Shackleton himself was Irish, and many of his family, including his father, supported home rule. When people pointed this out, he would say that he was a proud Irishman, but he felt that the best thing for Ireland was to be part of the British Empire. This was a tough sell to his constituents, about 10% of whom were Irish. Still, Shackleton was convinced that he could win on his charisma and charm. But in reality, Shackleton was not much interested in the nitty-gritty of politics. It was, in a lot of ways, just another scheme to get to the top without doing the hard work. It was the latest shiny bright object to catch his attention. His friend, Hugh Robert Mill, called the whole thing a, quote, tremendous lark, end quote. To run for the position, Shackleton resigned from the Royal Scottish Geographical Society. The vote would not actually take place until January 1906, and there would only be three weeks to canvass for votes. However, in those three weeks, Shackleton campaigned relentlessly, holding 55 meetings. The crowds loved him, as always, but that does not necessarily mean votes. Now, I am not going to go into British politics of the time, but Shackleton and his party were in a bad spot, and in the end, they were thumped nationwide. Shackleton received just 13% of the votes in his district, coming in fourth place out of five candidates. He would say this of the results, quote, I got all the applause, and the other fellows got all the votes, end quote. Again, the run for Parliament represented a way for Shackleton to gain prestige and money, 
but he was not a political animal. The election was just a means to an end. No matter, the defeat would forever end any thought of Shackleton getting into politics, but it won't end his dreams of getting rich and living the high life. Now, always know that he will have, in the back of his mind, the idea of returning to Antarctica. But before we pursue that line, I do want to mention a few other adventures of Shackleton's. Most of these would revolve around money. Shackleton was forever looking for get-rich-quick investments. He struck a deal with the Tabard Cigarette and Tobacco Company to promote their cigarettes. Shackleton, who was a heavy smoker, thought it would lead to big money. However, the venture, which produced some modest profits, would never really take off. A second idea had Shackleton investing 500 pounds in a global press agency. Well, that was wasted money, as the whole thing was pretty much a con. The enterprise disappeared quickly, along with Shackleton's cash. And those two examples give you the idea with Shackleton. He was that guy who always had some new way to strike it big. Sometimes a scheme would net a few dollars, but for the most part, it would be disappointment after disappointment. As for work, Shackleton had left the Royal Scottish Geographical Society, and after losing his bid for Parliament, he found a job with William Beardmore, a prominent Scottish industrialist who he had met and become friends with around this time. Beardmore ran a steel and shipbuilding empire in Glasgow, employing as many as 40,000 people. Shackleton was initially hired to work as the secretary of a small committee to assess the designs of a new gas turbine engine. Not exactly his thing, and it quickly showed. He didn't understand engineering, and his attempts to take proper notes were abysmal. People liked Shackleton, but he was ineffective at his job. He would have more success as a sort of PR guy for Beardmore. He would meet and greet important clients, show them around town, that sort of thing. But as 1906 came to a close, it became more and more apparent to Shackleton that a new expedition was his ticket out of the doldrums of everyday life. Now, I do want to back up a bit to launch this next section of our story, but let's not forget about William Beardmore, because he will be important in a bit. Let's go back to October of 1905, and that will mean the publication of a new book, The Voyage of the Discovery, by Robert Falcon Scott. Let us just say that this new book did not make Shackleton a happy man. Scott, while he said some nice things about Shackleton, had painted him in a poor light when it came to the farthest south excursion. Scott called Shackleton, quote, our invalid, end quote. And he told the story of how he and Wilson had been forced to pull Shackleton on the sledge. And he inferred that Shackleton's ill health had prevented them from doing greater things. Now, there were elements of truth to all of this. However, to Shackleton, it was an insult. The book, he felt, downplayed his role in the party and exaggerated Shackleton's health issues. To denigrate a comrade as Scott had done was dishonorable, at least in Shackleton's eyes. It would reopen the rift between the two men, and just as importantly, any loyalty that Shackleton might have had towards Scott was now gone. Shackleton now went about looking at organizing a return to Antarctica. One proposal that was floated included him and Lieutenant Michael Barn, who had been on the Discovery Expedition, but neither the British Admiralty or the Royal Geographical Society showed any interest. Shackleton was further spurred to action as others made their mark in the polar regions. Roald Amundsen had completed the first navigation of the Northwest Passage, and Robert Perry, an American naval officer, claimed a farthest north venture. And there were other plans in the works. Amundsen was talking about a run at the North Pole, and a Polish explorer, Henrik Arktowski, was trying to raise money for a South Pole venture. And those are just a couple examples. These were a new breed of explorer, eschewing science for the glory and thrill of exploration and discovery. Thus, Shackleton was convinced that he had to act, and act quickly, or someone else would steal the prize. He would reveal his plans to Emily, who would give birth to their second child, a girl, Cicely, just before Christmas in 1906. 
His wife took the announcement stoically, not wanting him to go, but understanding his need. She did not want to be the one that held him back from his dreams. Shackleton said that this was a way for him to provide for the family, saying, quote, I shall come back with honor and with money and never part from you again, end quote. What was not said was Shackleton's burning desire to find some sort of redemption to prove himself. Scott's accusations had stung him, more than he would ever admit. What he desperately wanted to do was go back to Antarctica and prove to Scott and all the other detractors that they were wrong about him. And we can never discount the simple urge for adventure. Shackleton had tasted the experience and, after a few years at home, was eager for that feeling again. He would tell one of his sisters, quote, You can't think what it is like to walk over places where no one has ever been before. End quote. I think this latter sentiment is important. I have portrayed Shackleton as this guy always looking for an angle to get to the top of the pyramid, sort of a charming hustler and braggart. But I don't want to forget that he was a man who had experienced some amazing things, and he craved those emotions and feelings those adventures had brought him. Antarctica had made him feel more alive than anything he had ever imagined. And to want to go back again and to try and recapture those emotions? Well, that was probably inevitable. And with that decided, Shackleton now had to raise money for his venture. He went to some private investors first, the idea to start with some seed money, plus get others excited about the proposal. He initially said that the expedition could be completed for £17,000, which was wildly low. In reality, he would need at least three times that. Elizabeth Dawson Lambton, who had contributed to the Discovery Expedition several years earlier after meeting Shackleton, was one of the first to step up, donating £1,000. There would be some other donations, including from members of Emily's wealthy family, but no major supporters. And that takes us back to William Beardmore, Shackleton's employer. Shackleton would pitch his plan to his boss, who, I want to remind you, was a very wealthy man. Beardmore was sympathetic and would agree to back a £7,000 loan toward the enterprise. In return, Shackleton agreed to repay the loan with the first profits of the expedition. Plus, the expedition's ship would become Beardmore's property. All of this would limit the man's liability. Now, you probably think that Beardmore must have had a lot of confidence in Shackleton, and perhaps he did. But that aside, there was something else in play, and that was Beardmore's wife, Eliza, who everyone called Elspeth. Elspeth was 15 years younger than her husband, and over time, she and Shackleton, who were about the same age, had become close friends very close friends. The truth is that most people thought the two were having an affair, although we don't know that for sure. We do know that they spent an awful lot of time together and wrote each other letters and became close confidants. She would encourage him to follow his dreams, and Shackleton would tell her that he would carry a photo of her with him when he made his try for the South Pole. Well, the relationship between Shackleton and Elspeth was the sort of thing that would be noticed by others, including William Beardmore. Thus, many believe that Beardmore offered the loan as a way to get his young wife away from the handsome adventurer who she had eyes for. No matter the reasons, Shackleton was now in business. He had a chunk of change to get his endeavor underway. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. 
Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. On February 11, 1907, Shackleton would reveal his plans for his expedition at a speech before the Royal Geographical Society. Shackleton proposed to sail in the summer of 1907, a mere six months away. He said that he was fearful of a foreign power beating England to the punch, so speed was essential. He told the society that he had £30,000 committed from private investors, which was a lie. He had maybe a third of that. He said that upon reaching Antarctica, the plan was to not let a ship overwinter in the ice. Instead, a small group of 10 to 12 men would be put on the continent at McMurdo Sound, where Discovery had made its base, and spend the winter there while the ship mapped the coastline before heading back to New Zealand. In the spring, there would be a push for the pole. Other goals included an attempt to reach the South Magnetic Pole, as well as some other as-to-be-decided scientific objectives. Shackleton boasted that the expedition would be lean and efficient. There would be no committees or boards to hamper their planning or delay their departure. With his plans out in the open, he now made appeals for financing for the enterprise, which was to be called the British Antarctic Expedition. The key for Shackleton was to get backing from the Royal Geographical Society. If they got on board, it would give him access to their wealthy donors, including King Edward. But Shackleton would be disappointed. The society was sympathetic to his plan, but they found it light on details, and thus passed on offering any backing. Now, the truth is that the society already had a secret plan in place to return to Antarctica, and that was with Robert Falcon Scott. The details were, at the time, all hush-hush, but the society was not going to back more than one expedition. To do so would only divide up potential resources. This meant that Shackleton would not have access to the wealthy and influential donors of the society. It was a huge blow. Now, Shackleton did not know about Scott's plan, and while disappointed by the society's rejection, he pushed forward with his own plans. He did this by trying to recruit men. The very first person he went to was Dr. Edward Wilson, his friend from the Discovery Expedition. To Wilson, he offered the job of second-in-command, saying, quote, I want the job done, and you are the best man in the world for it, end quote. But Wilson replied two days later, turning down the job. He said that he was engaged in Scotland in an investigation into an epidemic that was wiping out thousands of grouse, and he wasn't prepared to abandon that work. Shackleton was disappointed, but turned to others from the Discovery Expedition, including Michael Barn, Albert Armitage, and Reginald Skelton. All would turn him down for one reason or another. And then Shackleton would discover what was going on when another of the Discovery men would let the cat out of the bag when he said that he was already committed to Scott's next venture. And so there it was. Shackleton had found out why the Royal Geographical Society, key donors, and some of his old Discovery mates were passing on his offer. They had all thrown their lot in with Scott. This included Wilson. To add to this mess, Shackleton would get some letters from Scott, objecting to the plans he had revealed. Scott argued that McMurdo Sound and the huts he had constructed were his, and it was a betrayal for Shackleton to even consider basing any expedition at McMurdo Sound. In private, Scott was even more indignant. He said Shackleton owed him everything and that he was being disloyal. Now, let's take a moment and step back and assess the situation. In many ways, you want to roll your eyes at Scott's claims. Antarctica was a land of over 5 million square miles. It was larger than Europe. There were no permanent settlements, nothing. To try and say that, just because you had spent some time in a spot several years earlier, it was yours, was kind of absurd. However, there was a sort of unwritten code amongst scientists and explorers about doing this exact thing. It was seen as ungentlemanly. Scott's team had blazed the ground in that area, and to try and go and exploit those gains without permission was simply not done. For Shackleton, this was a big deal. To have to find and construct a winter camp in another place on the continent would be time-consuming and costly. 
Thus, he turned to Wilson to try to make some sort of deal. But Wilson was unsympathetic, perhaps even more strident than Scott. He said that Scott's previous work gave him claim to the region, and that anything Shackleton accomplished would be devalued if it was done from a camp in McMurdo Sound. Wilson would later go as far as to say that Shackleton should get approval from Scott of any place he elected to establish a base, which was absurd. The continent was barely mapped, and to try and dictate such things to Shackleton was unreasonable. Shackleton was deeply disappointed by it all, and in Wilson. It would forever fracture their friendship. Shackleton would consider moving his operations to the Weddell Sea area, an entirely different part of Antarctica. However, the lack of knowledge of the region made this an impossibility. In the end, Shackleton and Scott would meet in May of 1907 and strike an accord. Shackleton agreed to not use McMurdo Sound as a base, and he wouldn't even go west of the 170th meridian, which is roughly the middle of the Great Ice Barrier. This meant that Shackleton's desire to reach the magnetic South Pole was impossible. Shackleton decided that he would make his winter quarters on King Edward VII land, which was on the opposite side of the barrier from McMurdo Sound, or on the barrier inlet. The latter was a 12-mile inlet that Discovery had found into the Great Ice Barrier. Shackleton said, quote, I would rather lose the chance of making a record than do anything that might not be quite right, end quote. The deal was a bad one for Shackleton. He had given in to all of Scott's demands. However, there was one major kink in the agreement, and that was that there was no way to enforce anything, something to keep in mind for our next episode. Now, I do want to stop and make one comment about these events. And that is with regards to Shackleton's relationship with what I'll call the official scientific community. This included organizations such as the Royal Geographical Society, as well as previous supporters of his, including Sir Clements Markham, the society's now former president. Well, those entities would never really forgive Shackleton for what they saw as a betrayal. To them, he was an upstart, diverting money and resources from a real expedition. They wanted a team player, a person who would play by their antiquated rules and to veer from that path meant to be snubbed. For Shackleton, this was a double-edged sword. He wanted their approval and money, but he wasn't going to let the stodgy old establishment keep him from his dreams. And to be honest, in a lot of ways, I agree with him. The old-school British mentality was out of step with the practical realities of polar exploration and had been for decades. The sad part is that the establishment will only reluctantly embrace Shackleton when he does accomplish anything, which only magnifies their narrow-mindedness and lack of creativity. No matter, Shackleton now faced numerous challenges. Scott and his allies were actively dissuading others from giving Shackleton financial support, and potential expedition members were reluctant to commit to Shackleton, preferring to have a chance to go with Scott, who most saw as a better bet. And where Shackleton had to go in Antarctica was driving up the price of the expedition. He would need a bigger ship and more materials as he now had to construct his own housing for the planned winter quarters. But Shackleton was, if anything, persistent, and he pushed forward and he still had his sights set on launching in 1907 to get the jump on any rivals. However, he felt that investors were hesitant to commit to his enterprise due to the fact that not a lot was really happening. Thus, Shackleton decided to purchase the ship that he would use for the expedition. This was the kind of concrete step that would reassure potential investors as well as recruits. His first choice was a 600-ton polar vessel named Bjorn. It was only two years old, big, spacious, and with good engines. It was ideal. However, it was too expensive. Instead, Shackleton would settle on a ship named Nimrod. It was an old Arctic sealer, and at 136 feet, or 41 meters, it was roughly half the size of Discovery. Built in 1866, it was over 40 years old. The cost of the vessel was 5,000 pounds. 
When Nimrod arrived in London in June of 1907, Shackleton was dismayed to find that it needed major repairs and a complete overhaul. It was filthy and cramped and reeked of seal waste. Nimrod would ultimately get new sails and masts, as well as a new engine. It would also be thoroughly cleaned. By the way, I want to mention that the name Nimrod comes from the Bible. Nimrod is described as a mighty hunter before the Lord. I say this because, in North America, to call someone a Nimrod is to essentially call them an idiot. Dude, you're a Nimrod is not a compliment. And now I'm going to totally go on a sidetrack, because I think it's a great story. The reason an idiot is called a Nimrod goes back to a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Yes, a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Let me explain. In 1940, in the cartoon A Wild Hare, Bugs calls his nemesis, Elmer Fudd, a quote, poor little Nimrod, end quote. In doing this, Bugs was saying Elmer was a bad hunter. However, the biblical reference was not picked up by many people, especially kids, and thus calling someone a Nimrod was soon synonymous with a bubbling idiot. Okay, weird sidetrack complete. Feel free to use that tidbit next time you want to impress your trivia nerd friends. You are welcome. So, in the summer of 1907, Shackleton was doing pretty much everything to get the expedition underway. He was hiring the crew, overseeing the refitting of Nimrod, ordering supplies and provisions, plus raising money for the whole thing. The latter was a wild scramble. To potential investors, he always claimed that he had more money than he actually did, and he had no qualms about taking out more loans, usually based on repayment of the loan through book sales, newspaper rights, lectures, and so forth. Of course, he did this with everyone, so who would actually get repaid first was a can to be kicked down the road. Shackleton said that once he was successful, the big investors wouldn't even want their money back. He felt that being associated with the expedition would be their reward. And to that idea, I say good luck. In a lot of ways, it seems like Shackleton was a con man, promising the same profits to multiple investors. However, he wasn't using the money for his own gain. It was for the expedition, at least mostly. So, regarding the outfitting of the expedition, Shackleton had learned a lot from his previous Antarctic journey. And despite his short time frame and low funds, he did his best to procure quality goods and supplies. He ordered sledges from Norway and first sleeping bags from Lapland. Plus, there were fur boots made with reindeer skin with the hair on the outside. And for huts, he would purchase prefabricated sections, making them lighter and easier to put together. And there was even a small printing press. Also, regarding food, he pressed for variety and quality. He had seen how scurvy and a bad diet had hurt the Discovery Expedition. He was also determined to incorporate as much fresh meat into the diet of his team. Another interesting item he planned to try out was a motorized car. The car was an experiment put together by one of William Beardmore's companies. It was a novelty that brought a lot of attention to Shackleton's enterprise. Shackleton talked up the little vehicle, but in private he expressed his doubts. However, he was happy for the publicity, which helped draw in some prospective investors. Now, regarding transport, Shackleton was advised by famed Norwegian explorer Fridjof Nansen to use dogs and skis, just like he had advised Robert Falcon Scott. However, Shackleton instead listened to a man named Frederick Jackson, who had been to Antarctica about a decade earlier. To Shackleton, he promoted the idea of using horses, even though his experience was very limited. Shackleton took to the concept. He understood horses, just grab the reins and lead them. That was way easier than the unpredictable dogs. Thus, Shackleton decided to take 15 Manchurian ponies, whose number he would later scale back to 10. These were small but powerful animals. Shackleton planned on using ponies and manhauling for any excursions onto the ice. Now, the Manchurian ponies were an interesting idea. They could haul much heavier loads than the dogs, and as noted, the men would be much more comfortable with them. By the way, Nansen was dismayed by Shackleton's decision. 
It just flabbergasted him and other experienced polar explorers at the stubbornness of the British. The answer was right in front of them, dogs. But even Shackleton, who was more open than others about trying different things, resisted their use. So dogs out, horses in. Shackleton would plan on bringing some dogs, but their use would be limited. So as Shackleton outfitted Nimrod and scrambled to raise funds, he would seek to put together the expedition's contingent. As noted, it was not easy, as many men were committed to Scott or hoped to get an invite from him. Now, I'm not going to just run through all the crew that Shackleton hired, but I do want to mention a few people. For second-in-command, Shackleton selected Jameson Boyd Adams, a 27-year-old lieutenant in the Royal Navy Reserves, and the captain of the Nimrod would be Rupert England. The ship's chief officer was John King Davis. Alistair McKay and Eric Marshall were the expedition's doctors. From the Discovery Expedition, he added two petty officers, Frank Wilde and Ernest Joyce. The expedition's scientific contingent included the team's leader, Edgeworth Davis, plus Douglas Mawson, James Murray, and Raymond Priestley, all of whom would go on to become important figures in the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. Another man of note was Philip Lee Brocklehurst, a 20-year-old aristocrat who had been brought on board as an assistant geologist. Shackleton took on the young man after his mother donated 2,000 pounds to the expedition, meaning his position had been bought for him. Not a problem for Shackleton, who needed the money more than he needed an experienced assistant geologist. Like I said, I'm not going to go through all the crew at this time. We will talk about them as needed in our next episode. But there is one thing I want to mention about Shackleton's recruits, and that is that he developed a reputation for seemingly to pick men for weird reasons or after barely talking to them. Team members said that Shackleton would offer them a job after only talking for a few minutes, or that he would ask questions such as, are you a good singer? That sort of thing. In a lot of ways, it just seems like a strange way to put together a crew. And to a degree, that's true. But Shackleton often trusted his gut about people. If a person felt like a fit, that was the most important thing. Remember, some of these men were going to have to live together for two years. He needed them to live together and operate for a long time as a team. And he believed in having men of varied backgrounds. Class would have no place on Nimrod. Also, he loved to find unknown talents that men had that would help get them through what would surely be difficult times. It was something unique about Shackleton. He realized that living in Antarctica, the day-to-day slug, was the most difficult thing that he and his men would face. Yes, long hauls and excursions were difficult, but just surviving one in two years, physically, mentally, and socially, in Antarctica was so important. Thus, he valued men who could sing or play a musical instrument, or act or do whatever to keep the men engaged. It was part of creating an active and engaged community. And finally, even when it seemed like Shackleton had barely interviewed a prospective team member, in reality, he had done research on his own into the person and gotten recommendations from trusted colleagues. In the end, Shackleton would assemble a rather interesting team. Some of his decisions would backfire, but others would be master strokes. And you will see many of these men go on to bigger and better things in their lives. So, as Shackleton's departure deadline approached, he would get some welcome financial news. A cousin would contribute 4,000 pounds to the expedition, and Edward Guinness, of the famed Guinness Brewing Dynasty, would give 2,000. All of this would help spur other donations. The expedition was still short on cash, but it looked like it was going to get underway as planned. That was the most important thing. Now, Shackleton's expedition did not get any funding from the British Crown, but they would, shortly before departing, get the next best thing. And that was a visit from King Edward and his wife, Queen Alexandra. The visit, in which the king gave Shackleton the Royal Victorian Order Medal, gave the enterprise an aura of legitimacy, which Shackleton craved. Now, Edward had been a notorious womanizer all of his life, and his wife had put up with his philandering with a stoic grace. 
But when the 63-year-old Alexandra met Shackleton, she was utterly captivated as Shackleton turned on all of his considerable charms. The Queen was so smitten with the dashing Irish explorer, she gave him a British flag, which broke official protocol, and wrote him a note saying, quote, May this Union Jack, which I entrust to your keeping, lead you safely to the South Pole. End quote. Shackleton was thrilled by the gesture, and he and the Queen would always have a close bond. And that takes us up to another rather fascinating sidetrack in our narrative, and it involves the heist of the Irish crown jewels which were stolen in Dublin in July of 1907. And you are probably sitting there going, what? The Irish crown jewels? What the heck? What has that got to do with our story? Well, hold on and let me explain. So, the Irish crown jewels, officially called the jewels belonging to the most illustrious order of St. Patrick, are two pieces of ornate jewelry. In July, it was discovered that the jewels, along with some other pieces, had been stolen from Dublin Castle. The jewels were valued at £40,000. Now, how does this affect our story? Well, it turns out that one of the chief suspects in the crime was Frank Shackleton, the younger brother of our series star. Frank was, at the time, employed by Sir Arthur Vickers, the Ulster King of Arms, essentially the guy who had the keys to the safe where the jewels were stored. Now, Frank Shackleton was a dubious character. He had been involved in a series of poor business deals and schemes, including fraudulent stock market trades, and owed a lot of money to a lot of people. So here was his brother, Ernest, meeting with the king and queen, trying to raise money from important people, and he gets word that Frank needs some help. What Frank Shackleton needed was money. He owed a lot of it, and he needed to take care of some of his more persistent creditors to keep investigators off his back. The problem was that Ernest did not have any money and was all sunk into the expedition. He was living on loans and promises. But Ernest could not afford for the scandal to become public. If it got out that his brother was a suspected thief, it could potentially crush his chances with investors. Thus, Ernest would turn to William Beardmore, his most prominent money man, and ask for a thousand pounds. He said it was a short-term loan and would be repaid before Shackleton departed for Antarctica. He didn't say what the money was for. Well, Shackleton would get his loan and bail his brother out of harm's way, at least for a time. To wrap up this side note, Frank Shackleton would never be charged with any crime related to the theft of the Irish crown jewels. However, in 1921, Sir Arthur Vickers was shot and killed by the IRA. In his will, he would point to Frank as the culprit. Whether that is true, we don't know. But the theft has, to this day, never been solved, and the Irish crown jewels have never been recovered. Okay, that's a rather fascinating sidetrack, but let's get back to Ernest Shackleton. It was August, and it was time to get the Nimrod underway. By the way, the expedition was officially called the British Antarctic Expedition, but I will call it by its more familiar moniker, the Nimrod Expedition. Nimrod would depart England on August 11, 1907. Shackleton, still trying to raise money at home, would follow a couple weeks later on a faster ship he and some of the other members of the expedition would meet Nimrod in New Zealand. The goal was to reach Antarctica by January 1908. And this, my friends, is where I will leave things for today. The Nimrod expedition was underway. Ernest Shackleton had hustled and begged and borrowed enough money to get this going, but barely. He left a mountain of debt back in England, including the thousand pounds he had borrowed from William Beardmore, which he had promised to pay back before departing. So much for that promise. The expedition had, frankly, suffered from a shoestring budget and a hastily engineered departure. The ship, Nimrod, was old and cramped and small. The crew was inexperienced, and let's not forget, Shackleton did not even know where he was going to set up his winter camp. It all had the makings of a disaster. And yet, the expedition did have a person who will prove to be at his very best when things were at their most challenging, and that is Ernest Shackleton. So that is it for today. 
Please join us next time when we cover Shackleton's famed 1907 Nimrod expedition. It is a great story. You don't want to miss it. Again, thank you so much for listening, and please take care. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.